Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Torrance Witherspoon. And I'm Terrell Couch. And this week, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about it. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. Yeshiva University, an Orthodox Jewish university in New York State, has abruptly abruptly suspended all activity for student organizations this past week after the Supreme Court issued a 5-4 ruling upholding the New York State Court's order to force the university to recognize the LGBTQ plus undergraduate student organization YU Pride Alliance. The court's ruling is largely based in procedure with both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh Kavanaugh joining the court's liberal members in an order that sends the case back to the state's courts for further review before the Supreme Court will consider hearing it. The undergraduate group describes itself as, quote, a supportive space for all students of all sexual orientations and gender identities to feel respected, visible, and represented. Following the ruling, the president of the university, Rabbi Ari Berman, said that faith-based universities have the right to establish clubs within its understanding of the Torah. Yeshiva University simply seeks that same right of self-determination, he said. Quote, the Supreme Court has laid out the roadmap for us to find expedited relief, and we will follow their instructions. Going on to say that the university's, quote, commitment and love for our LGBTQ students are unshakable, end quote. Nevertheless, the lawyer for the students, Katie Rosenfeld, said the university's actions Friday was divisive and shameful. She said, quote, the Pride Alliance seeks a safe space on campus, nothing more. By shutting down all club activities, the YU administration attempts to divide the student body and pit students against their LGBT peers. The university's tactics, she said, quote, is a throwback to 50 years ago when the city of Jackson, Mississippi closed all public swimming pools rather than than comply with court orders to desegregate. The club argued that Yeshiva's plea to the the Supreme Court was premature, also noting that the university already has a recognized gay pride club at its law school. The matter remains on appeal in the state court system, but but judges there refuse to put the order on hold in the meantime. Terrell, I am most certain you can imagine what I have to say about this matter, but please, what are your thoughts first? You mean you don't want to start? Um, <laughs> yeah, like, it it's beating a dead horse, right? I, I do struggle with the, the comparison to civil rights movements, and I know we've had this conversation a lot because queer rights are literally tethered to civil rights, human rights, however you want to move towards it. But it is ironic that during Bisexual Awareness Week, we are having a very great conversation about the binary, right? This university is choosing either you're straight or you're not, or either you have student clubs or you don't. There's no ability for nuance. There's no willingness to understand that in a country of over hundreds of millions of people, there are going to be differences. And I didn't even know the the fact about the law school having its own queer space. So I, I could beat a dead horse and talk about how idiotic this decision is, how this university is showing it has no concern about its students. It is not living up to its mission. It is not adhering to its one function. Um, but I'll let you take that from me. Well, I just think that it's it's not laughable because that would certainly be making it um, making less of it than what it is. Uh, this this quote around their commitment and love for their LGBTQ plus students is unshakable, which 
it's seeming and not not just seeming but is very clearly quite shakeable to the point that you would deprive all of the rest of the students on campus of their student organizations just to avoid having to comply with recognizing one because you disagree with it i think that I believe in people's religious liberty, but I think that there is certainly a a, a limit to where that is appropriate and how that is and how that is um, sought for, from a legal matter. For for and what I mean by that is, if you are going to be an open university accepting applications, admitting students of all different colors, stripes, religions, um, and walks of life, because you are an academic scholarly institution who should value academic and scholarly debate and disagreement on campus, as I experience very often at Notre Dame, which I'm not saying is a perfect institution, but certainly recognize their LGBTQ plus organizations on campus. Better than this um, one, for sure. And and I think and I think that's something that is that is consistently lost here is that like you can't make statements like your your commitment is unshakable to these LGBTQ plus students and try to call religious freedom um to deny them a space to feel seen, to feel protected, to feel um that they have space on your campus. And the thing that's very ignorant about it is that just like any other religious um, organization or institution that's, that that seeks to marginalize further um, any marginalized group, but specifically LGBTQ plus students, that there are queer, gay, bisexual, transgender, et cetera, Catholics and Jews and and Baptists and like of, of all different religious backgrounds. And that's what's so disgusting about it is because you've decided that it, in the course of their life, when they come to know who they are, who they were born to be, that they no longer have a place in your church. And that is what I think is most disgusting because that's what I experienced as a Catholic too. And I just didn't buy into that, into that narrative, right? You don't get to just decide one day that because I am living who I am, that I no longer am welcome in this church and I just think that I, I feel so bad for all of the, you know, LGBTQ plus Jews and, and, and otherwise on that campus who do not feel re- represented and do not feel like they have a safe space to be while hearing this lip service from their administration about being unshakable. It's asinine. It's completely untrue. And I, and I just think that, you know, at, at which point that you are you endeavor to be a university where you are seeking people to come there to be educated, that that is the point in which you 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 for, forfeit getting to discriminate against um, communities of people in the name of your faith, which is also, I think, a perversion of your faith. Yeah, I, I think that's the key point, too, to, to latch on to is I had to do a quick, um, I mean, we live in 2022, Google's a thing. I had to do a quick Google, sh- Google search just to find some certainty or have some ramifications around how the Jewish faith does look at queer identities. And what I think is most notable is when you do a quick search or when you look at you're looking into these spaces, and the reason I did this will be relevant and known, you see conservative Judaism, not Judaism as its own. Because the Jewish people and the faith come from this place of acceptance and understanding of life and community and building, it was a it was a big struggle for me specifically from this article because I do agree with you, Torrance. It's a perversion of their faith. It's latching on to this conservative ideology of what you consider to be the perfect thing versus having a true understanding around your faith and what it means to build a community, especially coming from Judaism, that is centered around this acceptance of people and acceptance of one another. Hence the reason it it ties so well with so many other pieces when it talks about progressivism, moving forward as a country, giving to your neighbor. Um, I, I'm just, 
I'm not at a loss for words. I just, I'm not surprised. I think that's the issue. I'm not surprised that this is happening. We've seen it through Christian faith. We've seen what happens when you allow for the conservative minority of a faith to just completely run rampant. And they've laid a roadmap for other individuals in faith-based organizations to do the same. Um, yeah, and I just want a little, a little quick disclaimer before we close up that part of the conversation that like we recognize that we are not two Jews having this conversation and, and making these critical statements. And I want to make sure that, that that is that our listeners are aware of that. But I think it's what we're talking about is more based in principle, and and that's what I'm that's what I'm critiquing. Let's take a peek at the international fold. Continuing our coverage on the Russian-Ukraine war, consistent setbacks and resilience from the Ukrainian military forces have begun to impact Moscow's recruitment efforts for their military. United States intelligence officials state the Russians are performing so poorly that news from Kharkiv province has inspired many Russian volunteers to refuse combat. These provide some encouraging signs as Z and Putin pledge an even closer cooperation with more joint military exercises. On the nuclear front, Russian missiles strike less than less than 900 feet from reactors at the South Ukraine nuclear power plant, narrowly avoiding a nuclear calamity. The essential safety equipment remains operational with no damage. However, the hydroelectric power station was reported to have extensive damage forcing the shutdown of one of the plant's hydraulic units and partially um, creating a power outage in the area. We at Dangerously Likely will continue to follow the conflict taking place in Ukraine and update you as we learn more. Check our Facebook and Twitter pages for updates throughout the week. Other top stories from around the world. Baltic states have closed their borders to Russian tourists. A magnitude 7.6 earthquake struck western Mexico, knocking out power as far as Mexico City. And devastating flooding sweeps through Puerto Rico as Hurricane Fiona strikes um, the United States territory on Monday. And we'll be right back. And we're back with Dangerously Likely. Following our true-to-form tangent last week and recent events, Torrens and I discuss changing up the show a little bit as Caleb's absent. Some may have noticed the Dangerously Likely International Fault was absent a rather major event out of the United Kingdom. On Monday, the country and the globe shared their final farewell to Queen Elizabeth II as the country observed her funeral. Torrance, um, you shared a profound reflection of the monarch and the duplicity of our modern morality in comparison to such a historic tradition or tradition and institution. Um, what if we started there? Yeah, I, um, you know, so, you know, talking about the death of the longest reigning monarch in, in English history and the second monarch of any monarchy in the uh, second longest reigning monarch of any monarch in the world. Um, and I just think that it is very valid to take this opportunity um, to share your lack of, you know, sadness or sympathy um, about this institution um, in light of the many things that it's done in, in, in its history that have 
most certainly, I think, been wrong. Um, but I think that this is just a reflection that when it's only that and, and it's so grossly that, that it's such a reflection of our society's inability to have nuanced conversations about things like this. And I, I will continue and always will steadfastly pursue this idea of having nuanced conversations in the social, in, in the public square, because life is not black and white in any way. Um, and I did think that we should stop acting like it is and that our, and that our public discourse should reflect the lack of that. Um, and so, you know, I was thinking very hard about this as someone who, um, I am half black and, and white, but my, my white side is very Irish. So my ancestors are quite literally, um, the two people in which arguably, um, this, the British monarchy has, has hurt the most. Um, and as, as an Irish Catholic and as someone whose ancestors come from Africa, I can understand why we need to call out this institution for, for the issues that it's caused and, and, and its historical problems. But I don't think that that's synonymous with laying that all at the feet of someone who spent 70 years in service to something that she believes in, something that um, people in, in their country and in their commonwealth and their realms have 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 both loved and have appreciated and see her service and duty as something that is admirable, um, despite all of her all of her shortcomings, all of her imperfections as a human and the imperfections of the institution. Um, but to entirely negate the seventy plus years of steadfast, unwavering commitment to the service of the crown, her people, and her family, a job in which she never wanted, I think profoundly misses the mark of the moment. Um, people must remember that this is a this is a woman who one was never meant to be queen. She's only the queen. Her father is the second is the second son um, yeah. of her grandfather, who was the king and is only and only the king because her uncle uh, abdicated the throne abdicated. and her father became king. And then, and then, and then she became queen at the young age of 25 after losing her father to cancer. Um, and this is a job that she never wanted. She, she was, she was allowed to marry the man that she loved because they didn't, you know, this was not something that they were foreseeing. And so I just think that we need to have a more nuanced conversation about this because I think that when we're talking about someone who ha has been a, a, in most times, a beacon of hope and um, stability for an entire nation and for an entire commonwealth, that we can do better at looking at someone who's met, um, I think, what was it, nine different presidents, has had 15 different prime ministers, who was the only woman on the world stage of leaders um, uh, world stage of leaders at a time when there were no women in power anywhere. And she was sitting at the table with men uh, pushing back on things despite her imperfections and the imperfections of her institution. Um, we were talking about a woman who stepped out of her the rule of not being political and pushed back on Margaret Thatcher because she believed that apartheid was wrong and that she believed that South Africa should have its independence. And I, I just think that we're not having the right conversation. And I would like to point that out. And I, and I would like to encourage us to be a little more nuanced in the way that we, we talk about these things, because at the end of the day, she also is a grandmother and a mother and um, a country that loves her. And I think she was a world war, she was a world war two vet. She served in the Royal Navy as a nurse before she was queen. Um, I just, you know, as someone who doesn't, isn't like a, you know, royalist, I wouldn't call myself that, but appreciates service and duty and a commitment to that and what it means overall. Um, I have a lot of respect for Queen Elizabeth II. And I think I'm trying to formulate this appropriately because I, I don't want to call out the individual that I'm necessarily thinking about, but I recently had a conversation with a close friend, a close friend and um, they were going off about how the UK is responding to this and how 
like food pantries were shutting down and things were closing all for this funeral, right? And how they just kind of needed to move on. And I quickly pushed back, very similar to your point, Torrance, of that was their head of state. Like, yes, it's a ceremonial role. Yes, it doesn't have the political ramifications it once did for good reason. It's so... It's so true to form for a group of Americans to look at another country and be like, get over it, like move on. Why are you so sad about this? And then try to nitpick and find reasons and and lay this centuries old institutional sack of garbage at her feet, essentially, and say, well, you could have cleaned all this up. It, And maybe this is kind of to your point, a nuance because I am an African-American male who's queer, who comes from a multitude of backgrounds. But I really struggle with the idea of blaming Queen Elizabeth for so many of these institutional failures or institutional problems when it was Winston Churchill who made the decisions that led to some of the worst cost of living issues the United Kingdom had ever seen. It was Margaret Thatcher who had this very imperialistic approach. It was not the queen who as you eloquently stated, stepped into this role of service, not by choice, but by pressure and by by calling, if you will. And for us as Americans to just kind of turn and say, well, we shouldn't care. It it never sat right with me. And that that I think culminated a lot into the funeral because you saw a multitude of leaders coming to this state event to recognize the individual and the woman, not necessarily to pay homage to the monarch who is now um, King Charles III. And that's, I think, one of the things like I was most focused on is that like I can appreciate the woman, right? A twenty. I, I this is what I asked myself. I don't know many people, and and. Maybe I'd like to believe I could, but I don't, I don't think that that's probably true. That at 25 years old, I could have taken a mantle like that and run with it for 70 years with such steadfast commitment and stability. Absolutely not. I don't think that I know if anyone that could, and I certainly I don't think that I would be – would lack the humility to say that I that I could, right? And and to the people who, who, who say, you know, like this is a, a waste of their taxpayer money, certainly. I think it's a very valid opinion for you to have. That's mm-hmm. not – but if that's all that you could if, – if, if you – that's all that you – can say about it, then I do certainly think that you're missing the forest for the trees when we're talking about an individual who who devoted her life to service. Um, in addition to that, if you if you if you are completely against the monarchy, again, something that is I think a fine opinion to have, but you also can't yeah. say it like you would have been 25 years old having that opinion and said, you know what, yeah. We should actually get rid of all of this. We've done all this wrong. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get rid of all of the wealth and privilege I've ever known. I'm gonna throw yeah. away the carriages. I'm gonna throw away the billions of dollars. Like, I don't know anyone who's gonna do that either. And anyone who says that they would are absolutely lying, you know. And I just but think that it's that context can, too, right? It's that context of we're so quick to jump into the space and and look at where the world is now, but forget that this was an individual who ascended to the throne as the world was coming out of a world war, as the atrocities of what had happened in Germany were fully coming to light, as the United Kingdom was recognizing that its coffers were empty. There's so much more to this story than just whether or not uh, Lilibet, if you would like, 
should have taken on the responsibilities of queen. It was truly a recognition from her and her family that the country needed the stability of knowing that this ceremonial role would continue when the rest of the world felt so unstable. I, I, yeah, I think that that's a, a very important part is like, and that that's what you, I think you hear a lot of people talking about is that like most people in England have never known in England without Queen Elizabeth, that her stability is a lasting impact on the nation and it's, and, and it's, uh, Commonwealth and in times of sorrow, in times of war, during the pandemic, that, that she was a source of of stability that I think helped them get through a lot of, of tough times. And that think what you might about the monarchy and the institution uh, uh, itself. I don't know that it's a merited uh, opinion to full throatedly negate the rest of of the service and duty that that came along with those things. And. Uh, I think that, especially as a country, right, where we are so deeply obsessed with the royal family, and as far as the younger members of the royal family go, um, that it's 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 silly. And I think that if you like, I mean, we all loved, you know, Princess Diana, but we also tend to forget or act like it's not a thing that you know she was a part of of the institution as well prior to the the very sad downfall that made us fall even more in love with her, right? Um, and if you're going to have those opinions, then stop being a hypocrite because you can clearly separate the two. Then have a nuanced opinion and separate the two. Um, I think that what we're what really will be interesting is how does King Charles III move us forward? I mean, I, I think that you know this is going to sound interesting and probably fly in the face of something I just like what I've just been saying. But like <laughs> you know, like I, I think that this could have been a very appropriate time for a modernization of the monarchy um, to change things quite a bit. I, I think that. You know, having having had Queen Elizabeth for 60, 70 years over the last two decades, where we may have started having more robust conversations about what does the world look like without the institution of the monarchy in England, that like maybe that was not as realistic because of how long her reign was and the stability she offered. But at a time in transition in 2022, when we are a more modern society, that yes, perhaps this is a time to have a larger discussion around the uh, changing um face of the institution and, and its size and its impact and its role um, in the English Commonwealth. Um, and and I, I just, you know, I think I, as I've stated, I think that I'm offering this duality where it's like, let's have a very uh, robust conversation about what this, this institution actually does mean for our society while not negating that. Like we have people who through no choice of their own grew up in a family being taught, this is the duty that they have to the people. And I don't think that that's fake, right? Like, I don't think that they see that as something that they, they take lightly. I think that they're at their service, that their charity, the amount of time they put into as a working Royal, like is obviously exemplifies their commitment to the people and what they believe in as, as, a part of service and duty um, that we like that they are also like in a place where I think they're so, they're more self-aware. I think that yeah. they have a little more awareness about the way that that society looks at them um, and, and what role they truly play. And I mean, I would be remiss not to push back slightly as our international lead, but I would argue I would argue you are seeing a modernization. Do you, would I say it's the modernization that you would want in 2022? Absolutely not. But the now King has stepped up and tried to remove some of those barriers of access for the people of the United Kingdom. 
by televising more, by showing some of those actions that would happen behind the curtain or happen off screen so that the people are are adapting. And again, I think that's the context of this, right? The the queen stepped in when televisions were new. And I don't know if all of our listeners have watched The Crown, but there's like three or four episodes that are dramatizations of whether or not um, The Crown should be televised, if people should be able to see her ascension, if people should be able to see all of these different pieces of the royal family. And I do think you're slowly starting to see Charles step into a world or step into a role where he can play that. But there was a really good article from the independent, which has its own issues um, that really kind of laid to bear. What is coming out of this? We can say what we want about the institution. We can say what we want about the monarch, but it is a ceremonial role that is supposed to help reflect and be emblematic of what the country is feeling And right now, the United Kingdom is going through such a great upheaval with a rising cost of living that few can afford, seeing the critical and devastating effects of climate change that have led to record heat waves that have shut down power plants, that have showed how the infrastructure of a country can be torn apart with the um, just the rising changes that come from these climatic actions. And all of that is happening in the precipice of this man walking into a palace that has umpteenth amounts of jewels and and lavishness towards it. But to a point that you made, Torrent, there is the slim down of the royal family that you're seeing. You have... Henry and Meghan who have stepped away. You have the scandal that's impacted Prince Andrew um, with Charles now elevating into the king role. He cannot serve the same way. So I do think for us as Americans, it might be hard to recognize, but I do think for the United Kingdom, they're also seeing the royal family see some of these shifts of what does it mean to have a slimmer budget or have uh, budget's not the right word, but have a slimmer amount of action items that you can do because the royal family is not what it was when Elizabeth took um, her space. Well, I mean, but those are all like, I saw, I have been seeing a lot of stuff and, and was watching um, a kind of a deep dive uh, after the um, funeral, but King Charles has already taken steps to um, notify members of the outer, like outer members of the family, like that, that they will not be receiving funding that like he, he is already taking active steps to slim down the cost of the Royal family. People who are unaware there, they have incrementally went down the, the, the share of tech, like what they're getting from taxpayers has gone down literally year over year. Um, and that he is like, he has devoted himself to, uh, making climate a top priority, which I think, I mean, how, how else use a, a very um, old institution in such a, a, a modern and progressive way, right? Like using a, a large pulpit to um, advocate for something that he has long been doing. I mean, that's, this is not new for, for um, King Charles, the former Prince Charles, right? Like he has always been someone who has been um, working for for climate change and climate initiatives, and I think that now him being um, king, he's going to certainly be able to do more with that. And I, I'm not saying, like, honestly, I think what we have to remember is like, if this is something that like really the English people don't want, 
then that's something the English people don't want, right? Like they can do something about it. And also like, let's not, let's make sure that people are, like, are fact-checked here. That, like they don't have like the, the monarchy doesn't have any in, like power over um, acts of state. Like they, they don't pass any legislation. They, they play a ceremonial role. Um, yes, they are in the military, but that's, they're not starting wars and making those decisions either, friends. Like, that's not it. Charles could technically decide not to accept a prime minister, I guess. Like, that is probably the extent to which the monarch has power in the government. But also, as you lifted up, it's a ceremonial thing and it would cause a constitutional crisis that yeah. I don't think any modern royal would step. And that's a very broad generalization that I'm owning in this space. But it just Well, I mean, happen. it didn't happen... F- over 15 times, right? Like 15 different prime ministers, never once were they not asked to to um, form a government ever, um, both liberal and or labor, labor and conservative alike um, throughout the years. And I cannot see as obviously he has already acknowledged too, how he will have to take a less overt uh, position on some things because it's an apolitical position. Um, and guys, sorry, but like, the English have a pretty conservative like legislature. The the conservative party there has has had a lot of power for a very long time, and so it's not the monarchy that is that is pulling them in in a in a, in a conservative direction um, or has been. But I also want to push on that as well as like I really appreciate this conversation because this is what I think is missing from the American concept. Right? It's just a like like one tweet I saw was founding fathers fought a war so i don't have to care about this woman dying and it's like it's so much more than that and i i think this and one of the reasons dangerous likely has always been a great space for us is it's an opportunity to lift up those points but one important nuance is yes the modern parliament for the united kingdom is conservative but that is not our version of conservatism um you you don't have the prime minister there denying that climate change is real. It is a more true to form. How big should the government be? How much money should be spent on the government? But you don't have, this is also a nuance. You don't have the conservatives in the UK fighting to completely remove universal health coverage. You do have conversations about limiting how much it costs but those are so drastically different. And that's, I think that was always my struggle with this Queen Elizabeth piece is we as Americans are so quick to perceive everything through our own lens versus looking at and understanding countries different where we're having this robust conversation about Queen Elizabeth. We're talking about conservatism. Meanwhile, back in the States, you have two governors actively trafficking migrants to States as a political stunt. And those versions of conservatism cannot be equated to be the same. I yeah, I think that's actually and thank you, like a very very important distinction to be drawn, and and something that we as a and here's the thing, I think that people look at the the monarchy as an institution that is just raw, obviously in wealth and 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 a lack of awareness. But like, what's so like interesting about that is that like, yes, Queen Elizabeth very wealthy, obviously the monarchy very wealthy, but we're talking property and goods that they really aren't going to sell. Like we're, we're not talking the hundreds of billionaires that exist in our country where we have the worst wealth and inequality and income inequality in our nation's history. So 
Um, I mean, since obviously in modern times, I would say, let me not say history. That's ridiculous. Um, so in, in modern times. So like, I, I just think that we, we take our lens, one in which is mostly un, uh, ill-informed or uninformed from a lot, for a lot of people and place it over a problem that they're just not, they're just not one-to-one comparisons. And I think that, um, we will, we will certainly illustrate the difference in, um, conservatism as we get into this next segment and we'll be right back. And we're back with Dangerously Likely. Um, yeah, I, I'm still reminiscing on that conversation because when I got to speak towards conservatism in the UK, I genuinely believe that's what the manga or MAGA party, excuse me, as the president quoted, it feels like they are. They're this party that's fighting for a slimmer government and still providing for its people. However, as I alluded to, you have two governors in Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis who are actively trafficking people as a political stunt. So you have this nuance of Americans saying how little they need to care about the queen, how this institution, uh, the monarchy, the institution is outdated and needs to be removed. But when you come back to the States, you have institutions that are directly causing harm to people and i don't i'm not entirely certain how this conversation will go but i i feel like it would be a missed opportunity for at least both of us i know if caleb was here he would appreciate it to not dive into this migrant crisis that really truly as fox news i'm sure is talking about um it being a a democratic issue or a Biden issue, this crisis being created by two Republican governors who are seeking reelection and think that it is more valuable to project or show this defiance, if you will, of an administration versus really truly caring about the fact that these people are asylum seekers who are leaving detrimental circumstances in their home for what they're hoping for and now seeing is a better life. Like Torrance, we talked about this offline, but what are your quick takes or what have you seen out of this news? Well, I want to like start by saying like, I do know that in this fiscal year, we have seen a record number of border crossings, but the the specific thing I want to use for that phrasing is uh, people stopped at the border, right? So this is not just people crossing without us stopping them, without getting their information, without going through the right channels. It is our immigration system working as it is currently written in our in our federal laws and statutes, correct? So what really pisses me off about, about this move, one, DeSantis uh, sending, taking migrants literally from the border and sending them to Martha's Vineyard and dropping them off without them knowing where they're going, um, without the resources, without any direction, um, and then also doing the same and sending them to Washington, D.C., um, outside of the Naval Observatory where the uh, Vice President of the United States lives, and then also Abbott uh, doing the, se- the same and sending them up to New York. Um, I think that it's absolutely cruel and I think that it speaks to how little they value humans. They have no respect for their fellow humans. They are racist, xenophobic motherfuckers. And I use that harsh language like that because it requires our us to be that irate about it. These are, these are human beings who are believing in this American dream that we keep selling on every, like, like it's, 
like we're welcoming people. Like it's it's so frustrating the kind of language that we use to describe the United States of America, the land of the free, the American dream, where anything is possible, right? But then we want to treat people who come here to try to seek that better life like they are less than human and that people are voting for governors who are doing that. If we want something different in our immigration laws, then I expect the Republican Party to come to the table and actually meet us in the middle on the immigration laws. We haven't done any immigration overhaul in over a decade. And we have made it in, impossible or way too hard for even the most lawful abiding people who come to, across this border or come to this country to get a green card to, be, to, to become citizens. It is, I just think it's, it's, it, it's unconscionable to use other humans as a political stunt, specifically in this way. Um, I will say that this, that like my heart was completely touched uh, by this most recent happening last weekend where uh, DeSantis... I hate using the word shift and I don't want to use the word trafficked because quite frankly, I mean, that is what I feel like it is. Um, oh yeah. I'm definitely that, using the word trafficked because I, I know there's a legal argument to be made there. Yeah. There, and I was, I was, I was reading that. Um, and, and I think that by specific definitions, I think we could probably argue a case, but I'm not focusing on immigration law. So I won't speak to that uh, <laughs> too much. I really do wish I had one of, one of my fellow law school students who are in the immigration clinic here to talk about that. Um, but sending them to Martha's Vineyard last weekend. And of course, Martha Martha's Vineyard comes together as a community to get them resources, to get them someplace to stay. A very small island town off that does not have a lot of like space or resources. As, and obviously they have monetary resources, it's Martha's Vineyard, but don't have the resources on island to support this kind of drop of people that they were not expecting. And I just think that like that is the best of humanity, the way that they rallied together to, to, to get resources. And I actually like think that it's, it's, it's incredibly, um, I think it's admirable of the Massachusetts governor, I think it was Governor, governor Baker, um, who set up something set up uh an infrastructure and resources at one of their um bases in massachusetts and has called on i think a couple thousand of the national guard to help supply um beds and resources for the for the migrants that have been shipped up there because that's what we do to our fellow humans we don't treat them like there's some sort of infestation or problem um, that needs to be taken care of or eradicated that we that we follow our laws we give them due process as everyone is afforded. It should be should be afforded in this country under our laws. And um, in the meantime, we treat them like our fellow humans, and we get them resources to be fed, to be sleep sleep safely, and to, to get common health care if that's what's necessary after that long journey. Um, and so I just want to like you know applaud him, a a Republican governor. Um, so this is not just a Republican thing; it's this disgusting ultra conservative MAGA movement um, that is representative of. And I just want people to remember that, like in the early 2000s, like when when George W. Bush was running for president, immigration, pro-immigration, pro-Mexican immigration specifically, was a huge facet of the Republican Party's platform. So this bullshit is just another terrible, terrible um, symptom of this 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 move to the right, this ultra conservatism that is based in racism and xenophobia. Yeah, I'm not even gonna. I'm not going to credit it in a philosophical way. This is all a ramification of Donald J. Trump. It's as simple as that. And I I applaud you because I, I think your, your wording is right. On this pod, I've had a lot of opportunity to play the conservative or at least bring in a conservative mindset, right? In this situation, there's just no ramification or no willingness to even try to make an argument that they might, um, as you highlighted, yes, during Bush's first term, 
immigration was a core and fundamental piece to the Republican platform and how to do it appropriately as they were starting to pander towards um, Hispanic communities and Hispanic populations. But the reason I want to specifically call out Donald Trump, the reason I want to use the word trafficked is because we can't the words that the president used in his speech in Philadelphia ring very clear and true now. This is not a party of good faith negotiations. This is not a party of good faith governance. This is a party that views power as its ultimate and end goal. And it's all rooted in the ascension. I don't know why I've used that word so much on this pod, but here we are, of Donald J. Trump. These governors trafficked individuals across the country, not just to make a political point, but also to cause confusion for individuals who are seeking asylum, to promise them this idea of jobs and housing at Martha's Vineyard, who, if any of our listeners know, as you highlighted, Torrance, is a small island that is a tourist destination. It does not have the infrastructure or jobs to provide to 50 plus Um, migrants. It doesn't have housing to provide for 50 plus migrants. All in an effort to win some quick points and just, I, I can't even put it into words, win quick points and try to force them to be kicked out of the country out of a legal loophole. It's atrocious. It's it's completely absent of what anyone in this country should feel. And for an entire party to use this as a rallying cry just genuinely causes me to see red and just pure anger. Yeah. And I, um, I was thinking that like, so I wanted to point out something that I think that like people want to be, you know, upset and pissed about, um, you know, where taxpayer money is going and, and kind of, I think probably adds to the, the, any legal case about the trafficking of humans is that um, just as a little point of fact for for the Floridians here um, that of your one hundred and nine point nine billion dollar state budget um, that had bipartisan support, so I, I think we should probably call that out. I mean, obviously they don't have any you know strong voting power, the Democrats in that state, but nonetheless did. That, but also, as you're about to highlight, there is a reason this had bipartisan support. I'll let you finish. that the legislature in Florida allocated twelve million dollars to quote to facilitate the transport of unauthorized aliens out of Florida. And the use of the term aliens is so specifically on purpose racist because we none of our legal documents call people illegal aliens anymore. Um, and I, I just think that, and, and, and DeSantis on a, on a pr- press conference said, we're, we're going to quote, spend every penny of that. And, this is just, I think, like such a, a harmful norm that has been created by Greg Abbott and uh, Ron DeSantis. Quite, quite frankly, here's the thing. like, I, As someone who actually really feels it's important to have respect for the position that someone is in, these people have, have, have played politics with people's lives so much that I, I, quite frankly, don't have the gumption in me anymore to call them governor. Like, it's just, ugh. That is how pissed off I am about this kind of political game, gamesmanship with humans, with human lives. And I and the thing that I think is so frustrating is like if this was anywhere else, if we had no one is saying, oh, they're sending the Ukrainians 
up to to New York. No one's setting setting that we're sending these other white European people who come across our border up north on on tra- on planes or on buses. It is so rooted in this in this xenophobia and this racism that like it just it it both breaks my heart and and makes me completely embarrassed um, to be a fellow American to the to these people in Florida and Texas and not everyone in the in the state I'm talking about these these MAGA conservatives but but specifically um, their elected leader of the state who I will not use the G no, word to describe fair. anymore. I, I think it's fair to call out individuals from the state too because there's a solid chance that DeSantis will win will win his reelection this year. Also, Greg Abbott after doing something this heinous. I mean, this should be something that transcends parties. This should be a moment where Republicans in either state, even if they don't feel comfortable voting for a Democrat, take a step back and vote third party or vote down ballot, but don't vote for the governor purely because you are going to be tethered to that, right? Like we made the same excuse for individuals who voted for Trump um, in 2016, but we recognize we can't make that same excuse for individuals who voted for Trump in 2020. It is that. And it, it's DeSantis's willingness to completely disregard institutions as we talk about a stately individual who dedicated their life to service, who dedicated their life to stability and, and following um, the, the principles and the guidance of an institution. Ron DeSantis has unilaterally ignored a legislatively drawn district and forced it to the Supreme, the Florida Supreme court, and then drew his own districts and forced them to implement his. He has unilaterally taken COVID dollars and spent it on things that were not related to the pandemic. He has worked to erase inclusion and representation and visibility out of a state through the don't say gay bill through changing textbooks. So they're not quote unquote woke. There have been enough indicators for voters in Florida specifically to take a stand and, and genuinely disavow this individual yet. He's still polling fairly well in the state. I, I can't like, I, I just can't add words to that. I, if you it's, want to make an argument you know, that go for it. Well, you know what? I mean, you're right. It's you're right. I mean, you're you're kind of responding to this. One of the things I was I was saying about not because I you know don't want to say like every person in Florida is terrible, but you're like I mean it, that is a state that has so harshly trended in the wrong direction, um, and has not stood up as robustly as it could have in the face of such open discrimination against its fellow Floridians and other hu- fellow human beings. That like it is it it is a bit unconscionable. Like at this point, right? Like it seems like they have gone after every single. Uh, marginalized group. Um, literally, I mean, let's not forget, guys. Like that, this is this is also the state that that passed a bill after the twenty twenty um, the twenty twenty protests after George Floyd that you could you know literally hit a protester with your car. Like they have they've went after every single marginalized group in this country in the light of a pushback against their um, ultra conservative views and that are that are. And I will say it again because it cannot be understated, and I don't care how uncomfortable it makes anyone listening to this podcast, that these are rooted in racism and discrimination at every turn. And and I that's you you can if you want to argue with me on that, let's argue on fact, not on your bullshit feelings, because that's not where this is coming from. Um 
but I, I think that's really interesting that I want to point out in, the, in contrast to that is like we're looking at Texas that is trending in the opposite direction, right? Where we are seeing uh, Beto really get really get some heat under his feet going into November. Um, we are seeing a lot. We are seeing a lot of uh, uh, grassroots work being done on his behalf to flip that state. Um, Greg Abbott throwing DeSantis under the bus about this very this very thing um, because he realizes that he is going in the wrong direction and that his lights might be going out soon. Um, I. I think that, like, ultimately, like, we're not going like, to, we don't have any conclusion, right, to offer to our listeners in this conversation, but that rather, like, who are we? I guess I asked the question who are we as a people to accept this kind of behavior from people who are leading states? If you, if we have to ask ourselves those questions because our policies and these kinds of things are indicative of who we are as a people because we elect them and we put them there. And I know that we have voter disenfranchisement, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, if we were, if we felt strongly about some enough about something, if we were a little bit less selfish about our own personal lives sometimes, and we were willing to push back in, in a much more forceful way and sacrifice for ourselves out of out of principle and value, then we could push these these politicians to behave differently or out of office. And we'll be right back. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerously likely at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our new episodes. Also, you can drop us a rating, give us some comments and feedbacks on how to improve our episodes. Take us on a tangent, Torrance. Yes. So I, um, as you know, as everyone are and our everyone, excuse me, every one of our listeners knows I was not previously here over the week that we covered um, the student loan forgiveness from the Biden administration. Um, but I did find myself at, a, at my cousin's wedding this last weekend. Um, and as I think many of our listeners know, I just started law school this fall. And so um, that had, that was kind of a, a name, main topic with my different members of my family and then, you know, family friends of my, my cousins and stuff. And I had someone who, well, I realized that this news of me being a law school student felt like it was permission for these people who didn't even know me um, to think that I'm the person we should talk politics with. And this is without them knowing that, that I, you know, am very much up on my shit. Um, and, and that I am, it's not just law school, but, but I've got, you know, all of it in the pocket. And I had this guy who like, I, out of, you know, deference to the weekend and not wanting anything to be more to be worse than it is i really had to practice some patience and they're bringing up this the the loan forgiveness as being unfair um and i had to be kind of magnanimous in my in my approach to pointing out you know some of the fallacies in his argument etc or kind of the selfishness which i believe it is all quite selfish that people who think that because they've paid their loans back that everyone else shouldn't and like that these are just like kind of like Apple, like these are apples to apples comparisons that like people who didn't, who decided not to go to college because they didn't want to take out the loans, um, like they're not getting anything. And it's like, what I said was like, there's no, I'm not going to sit here and say that someone who made the conscious choice not to go to college because they couldn't afford it and didn't want to take out loans and be in debt to that. They don't get to feel a little upset. I'm not going to say you don't get to have feelings. That's not what I'm saying. Right. Like, I'm not saying that if you've paid off your loans that you don't feel like it's a little burn, right? Like that's a human response to this, right? But the idea that you are so willing after after understanding the plight of people in that position 
to so selfishly take a position now that no one is deserving and that any circumstance you find yourself in in need of relief is all a circumstance of your own and that, that we were not all sold the same damn fucking lie that if we go to college if we work hard and we get a degree that we are going to put ourselves in a position to get a job that makes us financially stable we'll be able to build the life that we want this quote-unquote american dream that we keep talking about and it's completely untrue. We were all sold that same exact lie, right? And, and you know, I don't know that I've been this vulnerable about it specifically, but, like, I got out of college, and I went home, and the jobs that I was looking at, literally, that required a college degree, were paying as low as $13 and $14 an hour. Like, it just doesn't, it just doesn't calculate with the reality that we were being fed about this investment in ourselves and our education that we that that we were being told and i think that it is so unfair to to say oh well you know what well you know what we're all just in this shitty boat and you need to you need to just deal with it like the rest of us did instead of saying well no i actually agree because i know you do and i know you see the circumstances in which that this is that this is true that People are deserving of relief even if you didn't get it. And if you think that that is the position that you take, that you are just selfish and there's no other way to characterize it, that because I suffered, you should suffer. What kind of standard or principle is that? And like what you really need to be taking issue with, as most things are because it's called nuance, friends, is that we don't have a con an economy that is – supportive of those kinds of investments in oneself, that we have a student loan infrastructure that is not meant for you to ever pay it back, that it is enriching these banks, that it, it and not our government it is enriching these banks. Like, I just think that you take issue with the actual specific things that are wrong with our our system that are disadvantaging people who are investing themselves to be to become educated because education is the silver bullet it is how we solve a lot of our problems it's our economy it's the it's the uh, economic structure of our economy that is a disadvantaged people it is not people who have tried to better themselves and get an education and have been screwed over because of it Terrell take us on a tangent I really don't have a long tangent today I know shock right um honestly i'm just excited because football's back um u of m is doing great michigan state not so much torrents and then you have professionals where the lions just won a game in like a decisive fashion um matthew stafford's looking great i just i'm just really excited for sports and so excited that we are kind of back into that part of the season i love the fall I love spook season, so sports plus spooks, I'm happy. Well, that's our show. I'm Terrell Couch. And I'm Torrance Witherspoon. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next to week. To see you next week.